0: Hello,
1: everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Ernie De Los Santos, founder and faculty charity Peel Academy and creator of Top Gun Audit School. We are live on the December 16, 2016 edition of Finally Friday. This is our last show of the year and our 150th Finally Friday. And I do want to thank you for choosing to spend your time with us here on Finally Friday. This is going to be a very special show, it is basically the nightmare before Christmas because we're going to have Jugna Shaw and Valerie Rinkle talk to us about Section 603, Site Neutral Payments. So, today's Finally Friday broadcast is sponsored by the Health Law Partners, providing solid advice and real solutions for healthcare business nationwide. And one of our partner firms is Recovery Analytics, that's Sharon Easterling's company. She does auditing and education, often authors articles for AHIMA as an AHIMA fellow, and she is a co-host on our show. Finally, Friday is now also sponsored by Zermed. They're a leading provider of financial and clinical performance management solutions. They use breakthrough predictive analytics technology to help you get paid faster, more fully, and more cost-effectively by both payers and patients. So visit zermed.com to learn more. And finally, we also partnered with the Council for Certification of Medical Auditors, CCMA, the creators of the widely used Certified Medical Audit Specialist, or CMAS certification. And we're proud that we've been approved to offer CEUs for our shows. You should check with your organization to see if they'll accept these CEUs, I've heard that most do, especially even the biggest ones. So this week we're proud to be celebrating this 150th show. We've been broadcasting since March of 2013 almost every week, sometimes more than once a week, and it's been a privilege, and I can tell you it's been a fun ride. I hope you've enjoyed the shows. I want to thank all of my loyal listeners and co-hosts and sponsors. You are all what makes this show run. I could not keep doing them without you all, so thank you for your support. Now, on this 150th show, we are quite honored to have two industry experts with us, Jugna Shaw, she's the president and founder of Nimit Consulting, as well as another principal of Nimit Consulting, Valerie Wrinkle. I met Jugna and Valerie this past summer at a conference when Bill Mom introduced me to them, and we did a live special edition back then. And I also first started hearing about this puzzle called Section 603. So I got to talk to them both a little bit at that time, and I knew I wanted to have them come to a show about 603, and so here we are with a 90-minute show at that. Uh, And to be frank, we still won't be able to talk about this in enough depth, really. So this is a very complex regulation. Stay tuned to hear about how there's going to be another webinar by Jugna and Valerie uh, sometime in January that will again be about how do you execute Section 603. Like I said on our site, this ain't no field of dreams. So now, as usual, we do have our weekly panel with us, Dr. Maria Johar, who's a full-time physician advisor coming to us from ProMedica, a hospital system in Ohio. In Ohio excuse me. We also have our revenue cycle expert, Sharon Easterling. She's an auditor and author with her own company, Recovery Analytics. And Bill Mom, a certified medical auditor and physician assistant. Unfortunately, Bill is traveling again and may not be able to call in. I believe his flight was delayed and then he was supposed to be able to get off of it. But anyway, uh, yeah, this is this – is, uh, um, Okay, we may only be 75 minutes, I think we'll probably go to more than 75 minutes, but uh, we'll, we've will we got plenty of time here uh, to talk today. So uh, before we get going, I do want to make clear that the opinions shared on this show are those of the panelists, not necessarily, not necessarily representative of their employers. My opinions are also my own and no one else's, and especially not those of our sponsors. And finally, these shows are offered for educational purposes only and are certainly not offered as legal advice. My lawyers tell me I gotta say all that stuff, so before we get started, um let's see. I want to go to uh, the website if I can get it to cooperate uh, this, is, this is always fun trying to switch over back and forth. Here we go, okay. So if you can see on the website, if you are new to the show or new to using this room, uh, you may want to go to appealacademy.com. And on any page, if you scroll down enough, you will find this box with the green buttons that look like the ones on your screen. So if you click on that, it takes you to a page that, rev- that uh, lets you know how to use the buttons and everything about them. Uh, including especially the chat room, which is that second button from your left. You want to open that during the show because there's often a separate conversation going on. Uh, and in that uh, in that chat box, I do ask everyone please be professional in that in that box. We got a lot of different people in there with different kinds of roles and titles, um, and we also just want to be respectful. So. And there's also a list of participants where you can see you are the one at the top of the list. If you point at you, uh, then you can uh, change your name uh, if you want to in the list. Now you can see in the list, some people do, some people don't, it's up to you, totally up to you. Makes it easy to talk to somebody privately because if you point at them uh, in the list, it gives you a chance to chat just with them. So then, um, What else? No, I'm not going to give you control. Uh, That's about all I think I need to go over on that. Oh, I wanted to tell everybody, please be assured while we do record the show, the video and the audio, we do not record what goes on in the chat box, just so you know. So there's nothing discoverable that could happen there. Okay. Let me get back to... Uh, This, and if you have not found the handouts yet, you go to appealacademy.com, go to the Finally Friday menu, go to this week on Finally Friday, and it takes you to this week's uh, page, and then usually there's a link here. If you click on that, it scrolls all the way down the page to the handouts. So the handouts this week are just the slides. There will be a replay of the show. It'll show up later right there. It's something new. Is I have added uh, by popular demand, uh, podcasts. So you can actually download this uh, after I post it there, which will be about an hour or so after the show. You can download the podcast and it's MP3, put it on your phone and listen to it at will, or whatever you, whatever you use to uh, to listen to to uh, podcasts and MP3s. And of course, here is the CEU certificate, which again I encourage you to look and see if that's. Uh, acceptable to the organization that you need to get CEUs from. Uh, And then last week's show is here, but if you want to see all the previous shows and get the handouts and everything, you just go to past weeks on Finally Friday, and they all show up there uh, in chronological order. Okay, enough of that. Let's get back to... um, Dr. Hirsch says, yeah, 150 shows I still won't give you control. I know. I'm a control freak. Um okay, so yes, uh Bill has a new picture this week, uh which you probably noticed. I see Dr. Hopkins noticed. Okay, so anyway, here we go. News uh there's really not much news. Well, there was some news this morning that came out. There's a a uh Part B. Billing, drug billing program, Uh, I don't have a slide about it, but that came out just before the show started. Uh, We will talk about that at some time on a future show. Apparently that big plan they had for how they were going to pay for change the way they paid for drugs, that's going to be gone. Uh, The Obama administration has decided to scrap that uh, for whatever reason uh and in chatting with bill earlier i think he i got to talk to him just before the show and they were just um i think he said that yeah that is going to have an effect on jw modifier i don't know what all that means yet so we'll we'll talk about it i not doing any more shows this year but we still have news and articles and posts coming out the other thing i wanted to remind you of before we get going on this uh is that we do have the uh, opps final rule webinar Uh, is available it started broadcasting this week it will still be broadcasting uh, next week as well so you can pick a day and a time uh, and go uh, watch the broadcast and of course you can send in questions right from the broadcast you also get uh, when you register for it and then whether you went to it or not you're going to get a link to the replay so you can watch it on demand uh, afterward that way okay so with that, uh, last week we talked about the moon and the fact that we finally got to see the moon, um, the, new, uh, the new real form, and of course there were an awful lot of questions about that. I think there's still going to be questions going on in the future, so uh, we, will, we will get to that again in the future, uh, but this week we have the professional maze runners, Jugna and Valerie with us to talk about the provider-based departments, what the heck all this means, uh, how are you going to implement 603, and uh, how does this latest Cures Act, how does that uh, uh, affect uh, how this is all going to work? So since I don't know anything about it, I'm now going to give control of the uh, screen to um, Jugna, if I can uh, see this out here. Let's see. i got to find... Now maybe I have to find Jug. Go ahead and
2: pass it. Maybe go ahead and pass it to Valerie.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, well, I will give mouse control to both of you then. Unless it will only let me do it one at a time. Let's see. Where's Valerie? Um, Valerie, where Probably did you Probably at the go bottom
3: off? of the list.
1: <laughs> oh, there you are. Yeah, because you're a V. Okay. That's
4: right. At the bottom of the list. All right.
1: Okay. There That's- we go.
3: Okay, let's move into our Let's see here. Is it advancing?
0: Not yet. Just click on the screen. It should advance on a click. Um,
3: I'm clicking. There we go. Okay, there we go.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Here so we, go. we
4: have our agenda. Uh hello everyone. We have our agenda and this is um we're going to talk about part 1 is going to basically be about current provider based requirements. And so we're going to talk about the basics here. Provider based is defined at 42 Code of Federal Regulations section 413.65. You really want to become very very familiar with this section. The these rules have not changed or been altered by Section 603 or by any of the regulations CMS is promulgating regarding 603. So that is a really good fact. And this section lays out the rules and qualifications and requirements for all hospitals, including critical access hospitals, that um, will be defined as provider-based or meet the criteria to be provider-based. Sometimes it's referred to as hospital-based. So let's review some general information about provider-based departments or PBDs. Hospitals bill for these provider-based departments under their provider numbers on the UB. They're billing for the facility costs associated with services performed in these departments. And of course, they claim all the costs for these departments in their cost report. If you think about it, even your emergency room is like a provider-based department. It's just that it happens to usually be in the main four walls of your main provider building, right? And it's not located outside your main provider building. So really what is the only difference between these uh, something like your ER and these provider-based departments is that they're typically located in a building that's not in the contiguous walls of your main provider. And so these regulations lay out the definition of a department that's considered to be on campus or a department that's considered to be off-campus. Professional services provided at these departments are billed separately on the 1500 claim with the correct place of service code. So 22 is used for on-campus and 19, which is new this year, is used on the professional claim for off-campus. Now, if you were to compare billing for non-hospital, non-provider-based departments, or sometimes called freestanding physician clinic locations, They bill only on the 1500 claim, and the place of service is place of service 11 for office. So, some general information again, hospitals are paid for their facility services under the respective hospital payment system, either the inpatient prospective payment system or the outpatient prospective payment system. Whereas physicians or professionals, other types of clinicians like non uh, physician practitioners are paid a reduced amount when they perform services and use one of those respective place of service codes. And the reduced amount is the facility RVUs. And why is it reduced? Well, the clinician is not incurring the overhead or facility cost to perform the service because the hospital does. And the hospital is going to be separately billing on its UB. So that's why there is lesser payment on the uh, professional side. Now, it's important to note that just because there's a fee schedule payment amount defined, it doesn't mean that in every single instance of a service, there's a 1500 claim. If the clinician is not physically present and doesn't perform what I like to call hands-on services at that encounter, so for example, if it's an incident two encounter for where, for example, drug administration is being administered by the nurse on the order by the clinician, but the clinician is not physically there examining the patient on that day, then there may not be a 1500 submitted. There may only be the facility UB for that day. So let's talk about the payment for the service. When you look at total payment for the service, which is what the patient or beneficiary cares about, then there's going to be a Medicare payment for the facility component that has its associated copayment from the patient, And then there's going to be a Medicare payment for the professional component with its separate associated copayment. And the totality of those elements represent the complete payment for the entire service. And typically, facility payment is higher in hospital provider-based departments because they have much higher cost than a comparative freestanding location. And their higher costs are associated with having to meet the hospital licensure requirements of the state, building codes, They have typically more uh, staffing mix that's different, like more RNs as opposed to medical assistants, for example. They have to go through accreditation and conditions of participation. Um, All of their medical records and overhead administrative costs are typically a lot higher in a hospital setting than they are in a freestanding clinic setting. So we're gonna give you some examples on the next slide to illustrate these payment differences. Now note that the payment rates On these next uh, slides, still represent 2016 payment rates, but the concepts are still applicable. So, in the first example, we have a visit and a vaccine, and so it would be freestanding and billed solely on a 1500 professional claim with place of service 11. And you see the physician fee schedule payment and the copayment and the total. That's all that is paid for that visit. But in a provider based department, you would see the 837. I uh, the, uh, the clinic visit code which replaces the E&M code and the vaccine code all right and then you see the OPPS payment and co-payment then on the professional claim it would be place of service 22 in this on-campus example and they would have the E&M component which was the 99213 and the physician fee schedule payment is lower and you have an associated co-payment with that so there's a net difference of 104 dollars so quite a bit of a difference. In the uh, next example at the end of the slide, or bottom of the slide, you have a visit and a uh, procedure, and you see the physician fee schedule payment there, and then you see the respective provider-based payment, including the professional component, and you see the net difference in that example is $405 rounded. So quite a bit difference. You can also look at the payment columns and add them up, and see that the copayments are very different. Which is where there started to be some complaints, particularly when a hospital acquired a physician practice and really didn't go through the exercise of, let, exercise of letting the patients know why costs were going to change, why billing was going to change, and why the services started to be different. I think a lot of hospitals think, oh, just make it a you know quiet, a transparent change. But it's not transparent to the beneficiaries, and so it really does represent a different service once a hospital takes it over. So, why the spotlight on this provider-based departments and this issue of site neutrality? Congress, CMS, and the MedPAC have been concerned for years because of this increasing migration of freestanding locations to hospital provider-based locations. Um, and there's increase in the dollars being spent by Medicare for what they believe to essentially be the same services. But in reality, they ought not to be the same services because if the hospital goes through all of the requirements to be a full-fledged provider-based department, it really does convert the types of services from being clinic or freestanding services to being full-fledged hospital-type services, which ought to be very different. So, so then there has been concerns raised by a lot of these acquisitions of freestanding departments that basically the signage which changed and the billing was changed, but to the beneficiaries it looked the same and yet they owed more out of pocket. So, let's review some of the requirements. The next few slides go through the requirements and uh, the Code of Federal Regulations that are applicable to all provider-based locations, no matter whether they're on or off campus. So for licensure, it has to be on the, on the main provider's state license, unless the, the state law does not separately license or include these locations on the license. There has to be full-fledged clinical integration. Elements like the professional staff have to have clinical privileges at the main provider if they have privileges at the provider-based department. The main provider has to have all the same monitoring and oversight of the location, including quality assurance and utilization review. The medical director over the provider-based department has the same reporting relationship to the medical uh, staff and the chief medical officer as any other department of the hospital. There's a unified retrieval system for medical records, which typically means that the medical records are the same as the main provider. And then patients have full access to all care at the main provider, and you are accredited by the same organization. So a lot of clinical
3: integration elements. And not wanting to advance.
0: There we go. Moving, there we go.
4: So further elements of integration that apply to both on and off campus provider based departments concern all the financial integration. So there's going to be a general ledger and it's going to include the provider based departments in the hospital's general ledger, just like any other department. This location has to be held out to the public with signage and other elements that make it clear that it is a part of the main hospital provider. So you typically would have the main hospital's name on the location and complying with all the hospital
3: conditions of participation, including life safety code. Physician services, whoops, I think I went past twice. Ernie, how do I go back?
0: Oops, sorry, I had myself
1: on mute. Okay, there you go.
3: So, Thank you. Um,
4: Physician services, you want to ensure that the physician services are billed with the appropriate side of service, and there is a requirement that there be no um, discrimination. So you have to see all patients that present, which is a uh, provider agreement um, when you enroll with Medicare as a hospital. You have to treat all patients as hospital outpatients. You can't treat some as office patients. But there is a provision that you're allowed to bill differently, and we'll talk about that when we get into part three. You have to comply with monitoring the services at these locations um, for the inpatient uh, prospective payment system, three-day payment window, and move those services if they apply onto the inpatient claim,
3: and all of the Mtala provisions apply as well. So the additional requirements for off-campus departments then, so those requirements
4: we just reviewed apply to both on and off-campus. But Medicare does have some additional requirements just for the off-campus departments. And so one of those requirements is that you have to provide the beneficiaries or patients a written notice of what their financial liability will be and help them understand that they're going to owe an extra hospital copayment that they would not otherwise owe if it was in a freestanding location you have to have ownership and control to the same degree as the main provider so it has to be owned 100 percent by the main provider same board of directors bylaws administration and supervision of the services have to be to the same degree as all other hospital ser- uh, departments
3: and services then this is where the location requirements apply So
4: the hospital department has to be within 35 miles of the main provider. If it is greater than 250 yards, up to 35 miles, it is considered off-campus. Another provision, it has to serve the same patient population as the main provider based on the past 12 months of patient encounters. So that's another criteria separate from uh, distance that you can use to qualify. And then you have to uh, comply, as I said, with all the conditions of participation. If you do have management contracts or management service agreements, the main provider, (coughs) excuse me, has to employ
0: the patient care staff. (coughs) Excuse me, let me take a drink.
3: And joint ventures and management agreements I have other considerations. Excuse me.
1: It's that time of year.
3: Yeah. I was gonna say, Valerie, take a pause for a
2: second. I think I gave you my cough and cold from a week ago. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so a couple of other considerations to keep in mind. How patient diagnostic services that are furnished in patients' homes are billable and payable under OPPS. So you're allowed to send your personnel and equipment into a patient's home and furnish a diagnostic service and Medicare will cover that service as if the patient received it at the hospital. You have to meet the supervision requirements. Also, diagnostic services that are performed under arrangement at the hospital are not required to be furnished in hospital space. So these are a couple of um, exceptions
3: for diagnostic services that I want to make sure you're all aware of, and I've given you the citations below. (coughs) So what are these voluntary attestations? If you
4: went through the 42 CFR regulations and ticked off all the requirements, you could put your documentation together and send that into CMS. And that's considered to be a voluntary attestation. It's basically attesting that you meet all those requirements and providing documentation that you do. Now the Cures Bill put particular emphasis on what had been a voluntary attestation and basically saying you must have submitted an attestation to qualify and we'll go through this in a little bit. But it really took the voluntary part out for certain departments that could meet the criteria for the Cures Bill. Why do you want to do an attestation? Well, it protects the organization from financial recoupment from Medicare if Medicare later determines the department is not provider-based. And it doesn't uh, matter whether the department's on or off campus. It's purely if it's a provider-based department. <clears throat> if you submitted a voluntary attestation and CMS later determines you didn't really meet the requirements, CMS would only recoup back to the date of when you filed the attestation and not back to when services were originally started to be performed at that location. And that can be significant difference in time. So amount to a lot of money. I've given you the program memorandum that takes you through how you can attest and where you send your attestations to. But even if you do not file a voluntary attestation, I really recommend that you put together all the documentation for each location and keep that on file to prove to you yourself and should you ever be audited, you're gonna know that you meet all of the requirements. However, enrollment is a completely different issue. Regardless of whether you attest, you absolutely have to enroll each location with Medicare on your 855 enrollment form. And CMS has issued instructions recently very focused on these departments. And they're going to have an edit that's going to edit Um, your location of service on your claim which goes in Form Locator 1 against your enrollment form to make sure that every zip code and location is on your enrollment form. You need to make sure that you're billing the proper location of service in Form Locator 1 on your UB. And I have the Learn Matter article there that was issued in August
3: around this issue. So with that I'm going to hand it over to Jugna To talk through
2: part two great thanks Valerie so in this second part we are going to cover some of the requirements from um, section 603 is what we're you know sort of using short term as um, the requirements from the law and some terminology and then the relation of section 603 to the information Valerie talked about and then of course the latest which comes from the cures bill and that of course just all came together um
3: within the last week or so. And let me make sure that I have controls here.
1: Seems like you do, or do I need to pass it to you?
3: I just asked you for those controls. So hopefully There you go. Okay. Here we go. Okay, great. Okay. So um couple of reminders and
2: and we're going to talk about some different things here because this has been kind of a moving target so we wanted to remind everybody that you know what we're calling um, short in in shorthand what we keep saying when we say section 603 we're really talking about that section from the balanced budget act of 2015 and that is where we saw you know for the first time all of this um, stuff that had been going on with site neutrality and the desire to have site neutral payment you know, discussions that have been had been going on for a while with CMS and Congress and MedPAC and it finally sort of came together in this section. And basically section six oh three directed CMS to no longer pay hospitals the OPPS rate. So that, you know, outpatient facility rate that Valerie was talking about. Um or services furnished um, in in off-campus provider based departments beginning January 1 2017 and and the D-Day or that big date that we've been talking about that November 2nd 2, 2015 that was really the date that was being targeted so if you hadn't been furnishing services prior to that date Um, then starting January 1, 2017, your payment would no longer be under OPPS. And there are certain exceptions, which we'll talk about, um, that that the Section 603 had already laid out. And then where you note here in red, the CURES legislation revises the initial information that came out in Section 603. So we have to kind of be careful what we're talking about. If we wanted to jump to just like what's the latest that's going to go live here in a few weeks, you know, Um, we could do that, but we wanted to sort of remind everyone what was in Section 603, and then we'll talk about what came out in the rules. So then Section 603, if it's saying you can't pay um, hospitals the OPPS rate, well, then what rate are you going to pay? And so that's this language about... needing to find an applicable payment system which was left up to cms and then something that's sort of interesting they talk about the applicable items and services that would be furnished in these off-campus provider-based departments they would not be considered covered outpatient department services for the purposes of the payment okay so um not to not to be confused about whether they would be covered or whether they're outpatient department services they are it's just that they would not be Considered that for the purposes of the OPPS payment and hence the need for a different uh, payment system or selection of an applicable payment system. So, sort of four key pieces of information. We just sort of talked about the Balanced Budget Act, Section 603 from the BBA of 2015. Then, this summer in July, we saw the proposed rule come out and it had all kinds of information that I think um, raised quite a bit of concern. And then Folks, you know, commented, and American Hospital Association weighed in, and the, um, a number of providers and and industry weighed in, and maybe some of you that are listening today also were involved in commenting to CMS about some of what it had proposed. Then we saw a final rule that came out that was was you know significantly different um, than the proposed rule, which is a good thing. And in fact, um, staff at at CMS um, have said that the comments that came in were really, really significant in influencing their thinking and what they put out in the final rule. And I, <clears throat> I stress that point here because there are still some opportunities to comment on very specific pieces Of the 2017 OPPS final rule that have to do with the section 603 and the payment implications so I make that point because we have until December 31 to get comments in and of course now the cures legislation uh, came you know came out and was signed into law so there's, we need to kind of track all of that for folks that are wondering where certain things were decided and, and where we end up. So right from the get-go, from the Balanced Budget Act um, in Section 603, there were sites that had an exception right from the gate, and that's the de- dedicated emergency departments, off-campus provider-based departments located within uh, 250 yards of a remote inpatient hospital location. Um, those that had already been billing as I mentioned on or before November second under the hospital CCN, and then um, on campus departments right so on campus is is um, separate from all this this site neutrality discussion so sites that did not have an exception um, from the law and basically it was sites that had not been billing for the services prior to um, November 2nd and that's from the law. That's really kind of all that the law stipulated and we're stressing that because again it's important to know where the law was versus kind of where CMS went off into a different direction and kind of where we're landing. So some of the terminology. folks have trouble with this and, and we don't like it ourselves this sort of language of accepted with an e and non accepted sort of a mouthful when you start talking about this some of this so in plain english you know you can think of accepted as grandfathered which means OPPS payment would continue and the non accepted are the non grandfathered meaning that other applicable payment system would apply so no OPPS payment so one of the critical changes, just to make sure everybody is aware from from what CMS had proposed to the final rule. So CMS had kind of taken some liberties from what was in the law, which we've covered with Section 603. And then when the proposed rule came out, they proposed what essentially would be an accepted location. So let's keep it simple. It was a location that had been billing prior to November 2nd, 2015. And so you think you're good to go based on the law and the proposed rule came out and basically said, well, but that location, even though it's accepted, could lose that accepted status and become non-accepted if they expanded services beyond these 19 proposed clinical families. And we won't go into that because fortunately, it did not get finalized but i wanted to just point out this was a really big source of contention it what it would have in effect done it would say well great you've been an accepted location you've been around for a long time providing services furnishing billing etc and all of a sudden you add new services and then part of that location all of a sudden becomes non-accepted so that seemed quite odd and again people commented and, and that has not gone forward which is a good thing um, change in ownership so there was discussion about changed ownership without the main provider also being transferred um, and so uh, that's okay you can have a change in ownership as long as um, the provider agreement is accepted and, and there's full transfer of ownership so in other words you can't just have a single off-campus provider based department changing changing ownership if that were to happen it would lose lose the exception and then relocation This was also a big item that was um, addressed in the proposed rule so we'll talk about um, in the final rule um, what we saw and so right off the bat the the really big deal item is the one that I was just mentioning this whole discussion about service expansion so the good news is Um, there if you are an accepted location or if you continue to qualify as an accepted location and then you expand some services within that location that would be okay there's no limit on service expansion now that that not to be confused with you know a change in the location or an expansion of location so you have to keep track of location versus service and those are two different things CMS talks about the fact that it's going to monitor the volume and mix of services that are provided, obviously wanting to track um, what's happening with uh, service expansion and, uh, and, and wanting to better understand where services are being provided, hence why we have some different ways of reporting information and we'll talk about that in a minute. So the, the change in ownership information that I just mentioned, it was finalized as proposed. Um, and then there was just a very small concession made on relocation, which I think also is concerning to folks. Basically, CMS um, says if there's an extraordinary circumstance for something like a natural disaster or where there's major patient or public safety issues, then you know if there's relocation, that would be okay, and then that relocation would not throw an existing accepted location into the non-accepted status. But people have had questions about what happens if our lease expires and we have to change the location, you know, sort of something else that might be out of one's control. But if something like that happens, uh, Medicare basically um didn't allow and a concession for that. That doesn't mean that you might not be able to get some relief by going to the regional office. But the final rule was pretty, pretty. Um strict on that. So the final rule um, defined non-accepted, so non-grandfathered, as off-campus provider-based departments that had not furnished services prior to November 2nd. So it's not just that they weren't billed. I mean, they actually acknowledge that um, you may not have had the chance, a, a chance to drop the bill, but Um, You know, so if you'd been furnishing services but hadn't dropped a bill, that would be okay. So in other words, there were providers that had just opened doors, you know, right at the end of um, October, and they would have kind of gotten caught by this November 2nd date. So the final rule kind of addressed that. And then the CURES legislation addresses this further, meaning there's some additional exceptions that would be allowed. And finally, no change uh, in definitions made um, about the definition of a campus or remote location other than CMS clarifying that that 250 yards, when we talk about that, um, that line can be drawn from any point of the remote location to any point in a provider-based department. Okay, so kind of a, a, a table um, or side-by-side comparison here about billing and payment. So the proposed rule had lots of issues with um, what had been proposed. In other words, you know, payments weren't going to be made to provider-based departments. Instead, the payment they Medicare had proposed would be made to the treating physician. Um There were issues um, related to that where then Medicare said, well, the non-accepted locations could apply for a change in their designation or they could enter into agreements with physicians. So things that raised a lot of concerns about um, whether people could even do some of that and then what about antitrust concerns? And again, just simply timing for some of these um, types of things that Medicare was, was sort of pushing off onto providers. The applicable payment system selected was the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule and then to obtain the payment, the billing would have to occur on the 1500 claim form um, with place of service 11. And that was you know, uh, just all kinds of problems with that, raised a lot of questions and concerns. Um, And so you can see the comments received. There were a lot of comments around a lot of the things that Medicare proposed. One thing in particular that Valerie helped uncover, which I think was really significant um, and and may have really um, played into CMS's final um, final rule de- decisions is that you know, selecting um, the physician fee schedule for, for the payment um, would be really problematic around 2,400 services or so where there wouldn't even be payment. And so they certainly couldn't have intended not to provide payment, and perhaps they had just um, overlooked uh, some of this in their analysis. And then lots of, lots of providers wrote in and raised concerns about billing on the 1500 claim form rather than the UB. So in the final rule, many, many changes. So first of all, um, and I'll jump around here first first of all, Medicare continued to say, look, the applicable payment system is the Medicare physician fee schedule. That is the applicable payment system. But the rates that we're going to use under that applicable payment system is actually 50% of the OPPS rate. And they did quite a bit of analysis to come up with is that, you know, kind of a a reasonable, um, I'll say, shot in the dark, that 50%. And, again, I think um, a number of folks are sort of looking at that in terms of providing comments to Medicare as part of the interim final rule comments. I know, again, Valerie is doing some analysis on that to determine if that's appropriate or not. Some of the questions that are coming up there about the appropriateness of that is that remember there's packaging under OPPS And there's comprehensive APCs, so kind of that larger bundle of services um, where one single payment is made. So even though the applicable payment system is the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, the rate is 50% of the OPPS rate and OPPS payment policies like packaging and comprehensive APCs will apply. So that raises this big question of, well, wait a minute, you know, is that kind of like a double hit, 50% of the OPPS rate and, by the way, still packaging and CAPCs. So I think some some analysis and some thinking needs to go in on that for folks that are concerned about it. Now is the time to weigh in. Some good news, of course, relief that we can um, continue, providers can continue billing on the UB 04 claim. or the 837I, right, institutional billing. We don't have to uh, go with what Medicare had proposed. Thank goodness they didn't finalize the 1500. And then um, the other good news is the payment will go directly to the hospitals. It enables them to continue showing um, non-accepted provider-based department costs and charges on the cost reports, and then that continues to preserve 340B. It doesn't raise any questions about that. So a couple of exceptions that come from the CURES legislation off-campus provider-based departments that might have been caught in what is called the mid-build situation. Um, This is really kind of where the rubber hit the road for, for a handful, and I don't know if it's a handful, I don't know if it's Five or 50 or 200 or 400 um, provider, uh, providers that may have been caught in this type of situation. Um, when Valerie and I were chatting about this, this the other day, you know, she, she said to me, you know, my guess is these folks know who they are um, and hence some of the relief from the cures bill. So CMS in the final rule said, look, we have no authority to deal with the mid-build situation. And and so they sort of stopped there with the final rule. The CURES legislation that just passed provides some relief. And basically what it's saying is it's moving kind of the grandfather date, okay, for the off-campus hospital outpatient departments from that November 2nd date to January 5th, 2017. If a volunteer voluntary attestation had been filed by december 2nd 2015. now you know this is kind of like playing in the maze with the dates and so again we've been going through with a fine tooth comb and and trying to understand and discuss this and yes in fact this december 2nd 2015 date is 2015 Not a typo so that means that a voluntary attestation would have been submitted now we're talking mid-build right so these were um, locations that were obviously under construction in mid-build may have actually even started um, furnishing the services and may have been after that November 2nd date but an attestation um, was likely filed and so this provision allows you know those that were in that situation to narrowly miss that deadline um, but they were obviously intending to provide those services and had intended to qualify for payment under OPPF. It helps them out. So attestations had to have been filed prior to that December 2, 2015 date and and if that had been done, then those locations would be considered fully grandfathered, okay, even though they had, they had not already started providing services. So a little more from the legislation, um, so so the one the piece that we just talked about is very narrow, right? And so then there's a little bit more from that legislation that basically also talks about an alternative e- an exception that would impact payment um, in 2018 and beyond. So there is this weird situation where in 2017, the payments would still be impacted, meaning you would get that 50% of the OPPS payment, but, um, if an attestation is filed by January 5th, 2017 and the HOPD meets the following requirements and, and we've got that listed for you here, um, and so there's information obviously, right? The enrollment form has to um, include the HOPD, um, the provider has to submit their binding agreement that says, hey, we were actually under construction and we were in this mid-build situation need to have a written certification that the mid-build requirements were going on and that those requirements were met um, as of January 5th, 2017. So again, there may have been some mid-build situations that don't meet um, the requirements in the previous slide but and that are sort of in that situation now and wouldn't be ready to provide services until twenty eighteen. And so again, if all the proper paperwork is filed by January fifth, twenty seventeen, and I think or um Valerie, correct me if I'm wrong, or is it sixty days after the signed legislation? Then yes, it's um,
4: sixty it's sixty days after the signed legislation, which is really gonna be about February twelfth.
2: So it's really 60 days, it's it's the later of, so that's going to be the later date. Yep. Okay. And I think that's the better way to look at it. We were sort of saying, why are they giving this January 5th, 2017 date? And then there's the, you know, 60 days after the legislation. So really going with that February date um, helps, again, a number of other providers, and then they would be able to get the OPPS payment um, in 2018. So there's still the re- requirements to report the modifiers modifier PN and then in the next slide we'll talk about the modifier we already know about modifier PO so modifier PN is new and mandatory for January 1 2017 this is the modifier that has to be reported to let Medicare know this is a non-accepted non grandfathered um, location so services it, it's The modifier obviously goes on the HCPCS code, so the descriptor talks about the service, but obviously this is a service that's provided at an off-campus, provider-based department that does not have the exception, so it is non-grandfathered. This modifier is what is going to let Medicare know to trigger the payment at that reduced rate, the OPPS, um, 50% of the OPPS reduced rate modifier PO continues so there have been questions about this does this modifier go away and the answer is no this modifier was mandatory as of January 1 of this year and it continues in 2017 And the descriptor changes, so notice that for this year, the descriptor was really talking about flagging those services provided in off-campus provider-based departments. So all your off-campus provider-based departments would be reporting this modifier today. In 2017, modifier PO continues for those departments that are accepted. So those that were providing furnishing services on or before November 2nd, um, as well as those that would qualify under the additional exceptions from the CURES legislation. So this modifier does continue in 2017. So this slide just tries to provide a quick summary of our on-campus, off-campus accepted, off-campus non-accepted, you know, do you report a modifier, don't you? On the professional claim, what's the place of service code? So again, off-campus is place of service 19, whether it's accepted or non-accepted on that professional claim, and then the freestanding, place of service 11, and then the payment system, that final column, trying to catalog for you there how the payment would flow.
3: Okay, and with that, I want to turn it back over to
2: Valerie um, for this part three, and this is really where... Um, she's gonna to talk to you about protecting the status, financial impact, some strategic considerations, um, and then we will um also uh turn to Ernie for some questions.
4: Okay, great. And I didn't see how you grabbed control last time. So are you turning it back to me or... <laughs> Yeah,
1: I'm uh, I'm turning it back to you, Valerie. Hang on a so. second. Okay.
4: All right. So we're gonna talk uh, through some practical applications of, of all of this. The first thing is um going to be protecting your, your provider-based status, particularly if it's accepted, obviously. And then um, this issue of coding and billing uh, services to commercial
3: payers, patient notifications, and a bit about financial estimates. All right. Let's see. Yeah, uh, you should have
0: yeah. it now. Uh...
1: there we go
3: okay so you want as I had
4: previously mentioned in part one I really think it's a good idea to literally uh, catalog every single location both on and off-campus locations and go through all of those provider based requirements in the code of federal regulation section that we talked about and make sure that you absolutely meet all of the requirements and confirm that you have enrolled that location on your 855 a enrollment form then you need to make sure that you have a process that any new locations that began furnishing services after that um, date that we've been talking about from the, the legislation, the 11 are identified and are separated in a unique general ledger department because that date is distinct due to Section 603, even with the revisions pure uh, for the Cures Bill. Now, the CURES bill may mean that a particular date changes for one of those departments, but you're still going to want to make sure you're identifying it separately. And then you want to make sure you correctly code and bill those services, including the application of the respective modifiers, PO for your accepted off-campus locations, and then PN for your non-accepted off-campus locations. You want to make sure that all of your documentation in the medical record supports Hospital services for each encounter and you want to double-check that you're correctly treating each of these locations uh, Appropriately on your cost report and to the extent possible Especially if you have medical staff that have privileges, but that the hospital is not responsible for billing for you want to ensure they're correctly billing the correct place of service code and The practice I used in the past is I actually sent a communication to those uh, medical staff, um, it was a letter previously, now I think you can do it possibly as a notification through your EMR reminding them to use the correct place of service codes.
3: Now let's talk about coding and billing of provider-based services to commercial payers. I know many of you out there in the
4: audience have experience submitting a UB for a provider-based department clinic. With revenue code 510 to a commercial payer and you get told we do not recognize that revenue code and we are not going to pay your bill charge under revenue code 510 and they tell you that they're paying for the clinic service solely on the 1500 claim so you have an option if you have a provider-based department and you perform the billing for the professional component you can split bill and do exact, that's the, the kind of the euphemistic terminology, and submit a UB for Medicare, Medicaid, and all your private pay and self-pay accounts, and um, the 1500 with the correct place of service codes, and do it exactly the same for all those commercial payers. But you do have an option to just for your commercial payers to put the entire charge on a professional claim using place of service 11. Now this requires in your finance department that you have to do journal entry reclassifications to make sure that what what that what is a total fee, let's say your facility component is $50 and the professional component is $50 that you bill on for that service on a Medicare UB and then the 1500 claim. When you're going to do this to a commercial payer, it's going to be $100 on the 1500 claim. But behind the scenes in your general ledger, you have to split it into the 50-50 and i was just using that as an example your your ratios are going to be different depending on each type of service you have to do that in order to properly account for facility cost and revenue separate from profi- professional cost and revenue for cost reporting purposes global billing is typically only on e m services and procedures because often the diagnostic tests are split out even for commercial and other self-pay payers And then labs and other tests can typically be be billed on the UB because the hospital has the CLIA license. So you wanna carefully work through this with your payer representatives. I've set this up for numerous health systems to make sure it's appropriate and withstands audit by CMS. And it can save a lot of headache with some of those commercial billers. Now patient notifications. As I mentioned in in part one, one of the special requirements for off-campus departments is that there be a notification given to patients of their co-payment liability. So you can kick this off at uh, the point of registration when a registration account's activated based on location. You can have a summary or have it be very detailed by type of services based on the most frequent services performed at that location. And interestingly enough, California just passed a new bill which requires California hospitals to provide notice to the patients and that notice says that they're supposed to direct the patient to a different location if it can be provided at a lesser cost <clears throat> or to contact the patient's health insurance company for information about other locations that may cost them less.
3: So, California hospitals are grappling with this brand new notification requirement that was just, just issued. So here we have a summarization of the types of outpatient
4: hospital services and the payment system. So for diagnostic services, you would bill the technical component on the UB, and it's paid under OPPS, or if it's non accepted, it's paid under the Section 603 Special Physician Fee Schedule Rule, which is 50% of OPPS. And the professional component um, for diagnostic services are billed with modifier 26 the respective place of service codes for on or off campus, and the physician fee schedule payment a professional component only. Now, the other type of service you have is the clinic visit, like we talked about, where your clinician, such as a physician or a nurse practitioner, is at the location of the provider-based department, and they are rendering uh, an evaluation and management therapeutic service, right? So for Medicare you build that technical component on that UB and an EM code is represented as the G0463 and that's either going to be paid under OPPS fully if it's um, on campus or an accepted off-campus location or under the section 603 rules and of course that would mean it would have modifier PN in that uh, non-accepted off-campus provider based department. And again the professional component. On the 1500 which is billed with the respective place of service codes is paid based on the facility relative value units that are lower but they're paid because there was this hands-on professional service because that clinician was physically there performing the services on the beneficiary at that provider based department the other kind of visit that you can have in a provider based department is a visit with a nurse or other qualified employed hospital staff such as a drug administration service or perhaps a wound care visit by a nurse, Okay, the hospital bills the technical component on the UB if it, and if it's a visit, a plain visit, it's billed with that G-code and again it's paid under OPPS or if it's in a non-accepted off-campus location under the new Section 603 Special Physician Fee Schedule. However, there is no billing on the 1500 in this circumstance because a nurse is not a qualified clinician to bill a professional fee. So in this instance, the only payment is on that UB, and there is no 1500 submitted for that service. And that can be a little bit confusing, but that's why it's so important to understand this um, in terms of how these departments work.
1: Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> Sorry.
3: <laughs> okay. Okay.
4: Let's move into estimating um, payment. So, financial analysis, as you can can Im- imagine, is very, very dependent on location-specific facts. You have to look at the payer mix for the location. You have to look at the mix and volume of services that are performed today and certainly any potential changes in the future. The degree to which those location services are provided perhaps on the exact same day as other outpatient hospital services. So, patients, a good portion of patients may start at the provider-based location that's off campus and then maybe go to the main campus of the hospital for diagnostic services on the same day. That's going to impact payment and billing. And then, of course, the degree to which the patients potentially are admitted as an inpatient within three days of the outpatient services. So all of that has to be taken into consideration along with whether it's accepted or not accepted, looking at the financial impact and reimbursement for a particular provider-based department. And then once you know that, you're then going to say, wow, this location has been affected. It's a non-accepted off-campus location. What can I do? What, what can, how can I mitigate this impact? So you have to look at things like, does the location qualify for 340p discounts? That's huge. You have to look at whether you can swap out clinical services in that location for non-clinical services that may um, be in a location that could qualify as either accepted or non-accepted. So you might have an on-campus location that you have billing functions or medical record functions. Could you move those out and move these clinical services on campus or in a location that's accepted? There are also services that are payable under fee schedules. So, um, mammography, for example, or therapy, outpatient PT, OT speech, they're not paid under OPPS. They're not affected by, their payment is not affected by this um, non-accepted, off-campus, provider-based special fee schedule. Therefore, you could look to moving therapy services into different space that doesn't qualify, and, replace those services, perhaps, with some other OPPS payable services into that vacated space. And then finally, you can look in enrolling as a different supplier type for a non-accepted location. That is, as a freestanding physician practice or as a distinct part ambulatory surgery center. Um, So you need to look at, again, the mix of services and what all of these different potential mitigating factors are. So we've got a few case scenarios here to just step you through to help you kind of see how this, in a brass brass tacks way, comes down to looking at a circumstance. So in case scenario one, we have an existing off-campus provider-based department that had been furnishing services prior to that magic date of November 2nd, 2015, but has about 5,000 square feet that isn't being used as clinical space. And so now they want to put clinical services in that 5,000 square feet. So what does that mean? Will those additional clinical services now be non-accepted provider-based department services? Well, to answer that question, you have to look at some facts. When that location was enrolled on the 855, did it have different suite numbers? So is the existing space a suite A and this new 5,000 square feet a suite suite B? If so, then yes, that might be considered a suite B as a non-accepted provider base because it's considered a different location. If it wasn't suited, and it's an entire single physical address, then one question was when you provided the information to the state in order to license that location, did you only license the part that has clinical services in it and not license the 5,000 square feet, or did you include the whole location when you licensed it? If you included the whole location, then it's likely that the additional clinical services wouldn't be considered an expansion if it's not um, identified by suite number. So I I added this third bullet because I do think it it, it actually lends important information to to the analysis. Are these clinical services that you want to move into this location due to the acquisition of a freestanding physician practice? In other words, is it exactly what CMS is trying to target and what the Section 603 was trying to target. If so, you may want to take a little bit, do an additional care in looking at the facts of the situation. Or are the additional services payable under another fee schedule, like mammography and therapy, in which case it's not going to be really impacted by this at all. So it's very, very specific, and your options are very dependent on your circumstances. Now, the second case scenario is an example where A new off-campus location is being leased, and initially the hospital had planned to put infusion services at this new off-campus location. But they also have an on-campus location that provides outpatient therapy services. Could they avoid that Section 603 payment reduction for this new location? And so I would say that you consider moving the therapy services from your on-campus location out to this new leased off-campus location because they are not impacted by Section 413.65 as a provider-based department or the Section 603 statute. So there would be no impact on your payment by moving the therapy services to the off-campus location and then locating the infusion services at the on-campus space that's being vacated, and they would be fully paid under OPPS. The third case scenario is building a new location that's off-campus to the main hospital But this new location is within 250 yards of the remote inpatient rehab hospital that the main provider operates. However, the new location is also to perform these infusion services. And the infusion services really are unrelated to the inpatient rehab remote location. It just happens to be um, that it's within that 250 yards. So the question is, is this an accepted or non-accepted location? And so the stat, uh, the the provider-based rules Say that as long as the main provider owns and operates both the provider-based department and the remote location um, of the hospital in this case the inpatient rehab hospital and as long as this provider-based department is within 250 yards of the remote lo- hospital location then it is accepted there's not a requirement that the services at the off-campus provider-based department be related to the services of the remote hospital
3: location it's just based on the distance and the location of that department. So we could go through numerous individual scenarios, but
4: again, the bottom line is you have to look at many facts, very situational specific facts, to analyze and understand the rules and the payment implications, and certainly um, you may be one of the fortunate few whose the Cures bill was targeted at and that um, are going to be able to get an attestation in
3: very quickly here because you are already performing services or are poised to do so and meet those criteria. So let's talk about some some implications
4: and future considerations. So again it's important to note that the payment system for these non-accepted off-campus provider-based departments is the physician fee schedule. It's not um, OPPS. However, they came up with a payment rate based on what they called a relativity calculation between the two payment systems. And that calculation was not conducted on complete information. They just looked at the first two quarters of 2016 claims data for any line items that had that required PO modifier to get a sense of the volume and type of services that are provided at off-campus locations. Because those OPPS package policies apply, it kind of stretches the imagination to really see how that 50% factor, including uh, packaging, really does compensate um, under what would be a physician fee schedule fully with separate payment for all services in the same manner. So that's where you really want to look at this calculation. Now, for separately payable drugs, CMS will continue to pay ASP plus 6 separately, but the drugs under the packaging threshold continue to be packaged. Now, for clinical lab fee schedule, you want to continue to bill those claims for lab-only services and the clinical lab fee schedule will continue to apply whether those lab tests are performed at non-accepted or accepted provider-based departments because once they're the only services on a claim, they're payable under the clinical lab fee schedule and not packaged under OPPS. If you have a relocation circumstance coming up, you really want to work with your uh, compliance department, legal department, and seek guidance from the regional office to see if it
3: might qualify for this extraordinary circumstance requirement. And I think we're coming up
4: on just our summary slide here. So, in the interest of time, I think I'll, I'll open it up to Ernie for questions.
1: Yeah, um, uh, this stuff is uh, <laughs> obviously quite complicated. I do have some questions uh, that uh, um, that I can think of going going back to this. In the first place, I mean, the first question that occurred to me uh, from the beginning is about this this whole idea that expansion of uh, if I expand services, I'm going to take back control of slides. By the way um uh, the whole idea that if you expand services at an off campus location which basically you're doing i mean you're i mean that's a benefit to the community uh you know whether whether you're charging you know of course you're doing more services in a location so you're you're benefiting the community and basically you're being penalized for that uh, if you do that uh more than 250 yards from your main hospital am i am i seeing that right or well ernie they
4: changed that that's definitely what they proposed but in the final rule they they took they they removed that so you are allowed to expand services in an off-campus location as long as that is in the existing location that had already been grandfathered if you're if you are expanding services by opening up a new location like a new suite then mm-hmm. it would be not accepted so you really have to look at what you mean
2: by expanding services at that location okay so your point okay. remains valid Ernie as long as we're talking about as Valerie just said a new location so one could still argue yes you're trying to benefit the community and you're opening a new location that's going to provide, you know, this full complement of services that mirrors, you know, that full complement of services of something on campus. And unfortunately, you know, going forward, that is getting caught in this, you know, site neutrality stuff. But but the good news is that people should feel relief about service expansion in existing grandfathered locations.
1: Okay. But, for example, uh, I mean, I think about in my own my own family situation, my sister winds up driving across town to go to a, a hospital because that's where their labs are, that's where injections and infusions happen, all that kind of stuff. If that hospital were to open someplace, you know, that was closer to us that did injections and infusions and she wanted to go do that, they basically can't charge the same – as as they do uh at the hospital because they're more than 250 yards away, am I right?
4: They can charge the same. So this this is your the hospital's price structure can remain the same if they feel like the services at this new location are qualified. And remember, it's still a hospital department and has to charge and bill and meet all those rules, but the right. payment that CMS is going to make is going to be less.
1: Right, okay, okay. So they're going to make less money, uh, even though they made it better for the community by opening another office more than 250 yards away. Okay. Right. Silly. Um, so, what is it, so what is it that they were really trying to go after? I guess there's a part of me that I, I still get lost in. What, what What was it exactly they were trying to stop? What was what was so, the big deal, just the fact that hospitals can charge more where the physician uh, practice can do the same thing and should be able to charge less?
2: They were essentially saying, you know, I think they were trying to do a couple of things. One, they felt like, you know, all these freestanding physician offices were getting swooped up, right? They were getting purchased. And then a sign was getting slapped on the door, and they weren't really doing all the integration work that Valerie talked about right they weren't sort of full fledged uh, off-campus provider based departments and yet they were getting paid under you know higher okay and and one could argue that you know maybe there were a few that ruined it for the many right Um, yeah and, and I think AHA and others have been trying to help CMS understand look you do pay more for services that are provided off-campus but look at all the things that we have to do to be full-fledged you know provider based departments and we happen to be off-campus because we want to meet the, you know the needs like you said with your sister you know wanting to be able to go somewhere closer and so I think that's part of the problem with site neutrality there's a belief that it's the same service and so why is a different amount being paid but in fact I think a lot of um, uh, you know, hospital um, strategic folks would say to you, it's not the same service. You know, we roll out right. a lot more ancillary services in these provider-based departments that we have, and, yes, many of them are off-campus to meet the need. Um, so going forward, they're, they basically are tamping down on, you know, new off-campus Departments that would pop up in their minds um, that would not be considered grandfathered, they will get that reduced payment amount.
1: Okay, okay. Here's a question that uh, Dr. Hirsch put in chat box. It says, can you open an expanded office on a different floor and use the other office upstairs as the mailing address and still be accepted?
4: i mean again I, I think I'm following if the eight fifty five enrollment of the um location just had right. like i said the physical address like the suite like, okay the, right three fifty five main street right and maybe three fifty five main street had only been one floor and so maybe the the hospital can easily expand out to a floor two or a floor three practically speaking that physical address is the same okay
0: mm-hmm. so mm-hmm.
4: but it is very factual and you need to look at it um and certainly How we're not attorneys file that? like you said yeah. at the beginning of the form the, the show so mm. um it's something <laughs> that you would do very carefully with your executive team and everyone because everyone's going to have a tolerance level for
2: what they feel is you know appropriate given the rules versus not and remember that yeah. they're monitoring, right? So, Valerie, like in this example, all of the sudden, you know, there's more volume or more volume and different types of services um, that would be billed with a PO modifier, for example, and that might be perfectly okay. So, you know, one of the things when Medicare says we're going to be monitoring and watching, they're also going to be have they're going to have to be careful about what conclusions they draw from monitoring if you know, volumes increase. They may increase for very appropriate and legitimate reasons and not because people are trying to, you know, skirt around some of these walls that they're trying to erect. Right. Right. In fact, one of my concerns about
4: this whole process is that it didn't just target acquisition of physician and, and conversion of physician practices. It basically applies to all outpatient hospital services that happen to have to be located you know, off-campus, and so um, that's why I I had in the case study, I do believe it it makes kind of a different analysis depending on what the services are that are being expanded. If they're traditional hospital ancillary services or other services like surgeries that only a hospital can, outpatient department of a hospital can do, that may look and smell and feel very different than Mm -hmm. acquisition of a physician clinic.
1: Yeah. What was the? There was something to um, talk again about. There was a, because there's the December second date. Then got changed from November second to December second, and then there's the uh, that that was that was in the Cures Bill, right? And then there's also the sixty days after the bill was signed date. What is what was that again?
2: So let me try that again, and, and Valerie will. Um... Step in and and simplify it um, further if I don't say this right so that December 2nd date does not replace it does not replace the November 2nd okay but what the December 2nd date is essentially saying is for those some number of facilities that were really kind of caught right there on the bubble right they they were clearly in the mid-build situation. They had narrowly missed that November 2nd date. Odds are they might have already filed an attestation. And so this December 2nd date, you know, we wonder why December 2nd? Who pulled that out mm-hmm. of thin air? It may have been the folks that were lobbying that kind of fell right on the bubble. So if the oh. voluntary attestation had come in by December 2, 2015, right, a year ago, if that had already mm. been in play, then what the Cures bill is saying is for those instances, the payment starting January 1, 2017 will be the OPPS payment, the grandfathered payment, no reduction. Okay. And then the 60 days after the legislation being signed, the way that I'm – Sort of seeing that is there may have been another whole host of providers that didn't get that attestation in by December second, right? They didn't get that done, but they were also in this mid build situation. so they were progressing along this path. they were under construction, you know, they had a binding agreement you know prior to November second, you know for this construction happening. so clearly, there's evidence that this was going on, but they didn't get the attestation in by December 2nd because um, they weren't quite ready you know, to furnish the services maybe early this year. Maybe they're not even ready by the end of this year, but they're clearly in a mid build situation. So if, if you're one of those entities and you know you're one of those, then you have more time to submit this additional information to Medicare. And starting in 2018, you'll get paid under the OPPS rates But in 2017, if you open and are, you know, billing for services, you may have to take that reduced payment. So in other words, you might sort of fall into kind of a little donut hole for a year, but then you'll get bumped back up to those OPPS rates, um, you know, if you file all the information as, as requested.
1: Okay, okay. You mentioned mid-bill. Let's go back. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I was saying,
2: Ernie, I think people really need to – I mean, this is really fresh, right? This stuff – I mean, as people say, wow, the ink is barely dry. So, I mean, for – and as Valerie says, you know, you probably know if you're impacted, right? If you're one of these that kind of um, is is getting some extra exceptions from this legislation, you kind of know who you are, um, hopefully, and you're working through this with, you know, your executives and your legal and compliance folks.
1: Okay, all right, well, we got three minutes. I wanna I wanna let you go over the summary slide, but I wanna jump back to uh, that case scenario two. I think, I, yeah, this one. Um, uh, what about, is mid-build gonna be a, a factor here? It could be a, a factor in here, couldn't it? Mm, so you're trying sure. to take the, if they... the lease? Yeah, go ahead,
3: Valerie. Yeah,
2: this
4: is a leasing situation um that we put here so if it was a if it was a actual building of a new location and they had had a binding agreement in place as of that 11 to 15 date so they had signed with the construction company um then they possibly and the the they're poised to provide services pretty soon here so they can put all their documentation and they've already been licensed by the state which typically requires you know sign off meaning that the build is done they could potentially meet that criteria for mid-build. But in this case, it was a, a leasing a new location.
0: Okay. So in other
2: words, Valerie, we can't get sneaky and try to convert a lease into a mid-build <laughs> given, given the requirements okay. that are out there about what mid-build means. Exactly, exactly.
1: Okay, okay, okay. But still the thing you could do here as you were suggesting there is, what you could do is just swap one set of services for another, in order to not have to affect the billing. And Absolutely. that may be, that, yeah, may be okay. Yep. May not make much sense, depending upon how far that building is and what you were trying to do in the first place. But on the other hand, let's say you're 300 yards away, um, I mean, that could be a big deal.
4: It could be a very big deal. So there and there's yeah. uh, therapy services, MAMO, there's several services that you can look to swap out. Um, then there's also the issue which we touched upon in part one, that you could reconfigure your diagnostic services potentially and not have an issue. So there's some scenarios, again, requires legal analysis and factual situations, but this is exactly what hospitals are going to start doing if they're caught in this or moving forward in the future, figuring out what the options are and what
2: um, you you could potentially do to mitigate the impact. So, okay. Valerie, in other words, if you're not mid-build but you're new-build, right, you're, Correct. you're, you're planning um, and you're trying to evaluate and make plans, You, I mean, those are the ones where you're really saying sit down, do some strategic analysis, figure out what makes the most sense. And I would argue, you know, folks need to figure some of that out, You know, th- those sort of first to market, if you will, to figure out some of that stuff before maybe Medicare begins looking even more closely are probably going to be able to do some 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 interesting configurations that would all be above the board but you might be able to swap out services in a way that's advantageous for you without you know it being a problem or without us seeing other um regulation maybe that would come out that would that would try to put further limits on things yep yeah
1: so the big deal, I think, like on this summary slide, is you know you better figure out whether you need to file attestations, uh, whether it's a good idea, and then you've got to set up for those modifiers, um, and and be ready to go with all that because that's going to make a big deal in the billing either way.
2: Well, and Valerie, I want to yeah. I want to Ernie about attestations. I mean, Valerie, you've got me convinced that everyone needs to file an attestation at this point because this is all being Mm. scrutinized right it's all being scrutinized so it's the most from a
4: fiduciary responsibility perspective i think it's the most appropriate thing to do and i've you know i've done numerous attestations and it's and it's you know it's pulling take just ticking through all of the requirements and pulling together the documentation to prove it and um it's it's not complex it's just time consuming
1: yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Juggan and Valerie, that was terrific. I mean, this is a this is a ridiculously complex subject. I know you guys are planning on doing a webinar um, in January. You said probably in mid-January that will be more of this.
2: Yeah. So Ernie, we are hoping. So you know, as folks are often familiar with with Medicare releasing year-end. Implementing instructions for all kinds of things. You know, we we imagine mm-hmm. there may be more guidance that comes out. People have definitely continued to ask some questions um, about you know operational issues. So hopefully there'll be more guidance by year end, very early into the first week of January. We are planning on doing, um, uh, you know, taking the information from today, taking it a, a bit further, maybe implementing some more case studies, talking about some of the strategic issues and certainly any other implementing instruction from CMS. So we're going to do that. It's We're scheduling to do that right now on January 17th. It's a Tuesday at 1 Eastern. Mm. So if okay. folks want more information, Ernie, I don't know if the best way is for them to send you an email. Um or, you know they can they can certainly email me um, um whatever is easiest for folks and then we can get them out information
1: Yeah and I think uh, you know if you would definitely like to get uh, notice on that I mean um, go ahead and put your email in the chat box and uh, I'll make sure that uh, to get that to uh, to Jugna and and Valerie so you can be sure and get the you know earliest notices about that. Uh, so, let me know by just putting your email in into the chat box and i'll i'll make sure that that happens so in the meantime, I mean certainly watch for i will be happy to uh, tell everybody about that when you guys have that uh coming okay. up so all right so thanks everyone um that's all we have time for today, and we certainly uh you know uh had a good had a good bit of uh, Great 90-minute show to end our year. Uh, thanks, thanks again to everybody for being a part of our 150th show. Um, we uh, we do end with this show. We're uh, going to be dark and on break until January 13th, uh, but I will still be sending out emails and notices. And like I said, put your uh, put your email in the chat box if you'd like to know more about that before uh, before we come back on the 13th. Uh, and they have their webinar on the 17th. So um, we will be back on January 13th with Mary Gregory from MAS Coding Solutions. She's gonna be talking about changes that came from the OPPS final rule about uh, changes in ICD-10 coding guidelines, and especially in regards to the new RAC scope of work that um, it talks a lot about DRG validation in that scope of work. But there's a very conspicuous silence on the on the clinical validation. So we're not sure what that means or what's happened, but there's definitely a big difference in that between the uh, SOW that did finally come out and the one that's uh, were, were proposed before that. So watch for my email announcements about that. We will send you uh, more stuff about uh, Jugna and Valerie in the future. Um, Thanks to everyone for participating today, and, of course, to uh, Juden and Valerie and everybody for sharing their knowledge and experience here, and to those of you who participated in the chat box today. We always have fun. So, of course, we owe thanks to our sponsors and partners, health law partners, Zermed, Recovery Analytics, and the CCMA. It's their contributions that continue to make these broadcasts possible. So. Watch for my emails about the uh, January 13th show. And please share the, uh, uh, please be sure to sign up for the OPPS Final Rule webinar, which will continue to be broadcast for the next couple of weeks. Share the links to our show with your friends and colleagues. And uh, last thing I want to share with you is just to say thank you so much uh, for helping us uh, do 150 shows on Finally Friday. We will see you next year when it's finally Friday again. So have a great holiday, everyone, and goodbye.